0: The History of Literature Podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. go. Let's get started. I'm very glad you could join me today and that you chose to do so. We are on part three of an Alice Monroe masterpiece, The Love of a Good Woman, and we haven't talked about the title at all. Let me say, first of all, that if you're just getting started now, if you're wondering if you're joining the party late, you're welcome to listen, but you should probably at least listen to part two first. Part one is disconnected. It's important for atmosphere context and mood setting and some broader themes, but it's kind of a standalone episode. That's just how the novella works. Parts two and three are not. You should really listen to them both. So if you haven't listened to part two yet, you might want to check that out and then come back, unless you're really familiar with the story. I guess that's also a possibility. I'll leave it up to you. So the title, the title, the love of a good woman. What does that mean? Usually, it's a phrase we use when we're talking about men, right? Could be women too, of course, but the the phrase as we've come to know it is kind of an aspirational phrase, something men need, something that will help you in life, right? Need a roof over my head, need a car in the garage, need clothes on my back, a chicken in the pot, and the love of a good woman. It's elevated more than those other things. All he needed was the love of a good woman. Have you heard that before? And Monroe is taking that apart a little bit, holding a microscope up to it. Here's love. Well, first of all, here's a good woman. Here's a good woman, and here's her love. What do those things mean exactly? A good woman might love in a lot of different ways. It's not really connected to a man when you just take that phrase. Subtract that part out of it. Don't think of it as something that a man needs to complete him, to make him whole, to help him go out and slay dragons or run a business or conquer his demons. Think of it as a woman who wants to be good, who's trying to be good. How is that defined? Who sets that expectation for her? Are you good? Listener, are you good? Are you a good person? What makes you think that? Because you're kind to others? Because you're a loving person? Do you have a good profession? Maybe you're a doctor or a nurse. Maybe you're a teacher. Maybe you work for a nonprofit that plants trees or cleans the ocean or helps orphans. Maybe you're religious and follow all the rules. Maybe you have a good heart. Would someone looking at you say, there's a good woman, or there's a good man, there's a good person? Is that something you think of yourself? Monroe invites us to ask these questions. Is Enid good? Are the other women in the story? Who gets this love from these people, and in what form? Think about all the love that a good woman can give, the steady love of a spouse, the universal, all-encompassing love of a mother, the dutiful love of a daughter, the warm glow of a giving person, a caregiver, a nurturer, an angel, a saint. These forms of love are visible, aren't they? One trick of this Monroe story is that most of the time, stories expand out. That's what we're used to. They start small. They start with a detail. And by the end, you're thinking of the universe, right? You start with a line of dialogue, of a man stubbing his toe, a woman boiling a pot of tea. And by the end, you're looking at the stars and thinking about how you need to change your life or about what love really is when you try to capture it or about the feeling you have that life is precious and you need to seize the day. That's how stories work, right? You usually don't start with a wide open, expansive epiphany and then shrink. This story kind of does, in a way. It's not so much shrinking as focusing its intensity. It's like a camera that's blurry and suddenly it's very precise, smaller in scope, but precise. I'd say it's like the ophthalmoscope at the beginning of the story, the two pages we talked about couple times ago, a couple episodes ago, the eye doctor and all that, but I don't particularly like making too much of that kind of connection, because it always seems like it's this aha moment for the reader or critic, and it doesn't really matter so much. Those themes are there to get you thinking. I'm not saying it wasn't Alice Monroe's choice to put them there to give all of this kind of a synergy, kind of a rhyming but their background, they don't really tell you anything. So what? We're not connecting dots here. We're wrestling with the human condition. And here we have something very different at stake. Remember the Unabomber? If you're unfamiliar with this story he or you've forgotten it he was a guy who hated the modern world and decided to live off the land. This was a few decades ago. Ted Kaczynski. He was a professor at one point, I think he was a mathematician, and he moved to a cabin in Montana, and from there he sent bombs to people who worked in fields where they used or developed modern technology. For 17 years, he was sending these bombs, killed three people, and injured 23 others. Think about that, 17 years he kept up this practice. That's a very long time for an obsession like that. He evaded detection that entire time. He drove hundreds of miles to mail his bombs from different post offices and drop some of them off and was very uh, clever, very methodical about his approach. And he wrote a manifesto. He said, After 17 years, he said that if his manifesto was printed verbatim by a major newspaper, he would desist from terrorism. What do you do at that point if you're the FBI? You profile the man. Great. They learned he was smart, a malcontent, probably had some connections to academia in his past. And you can examine the devices, look for clues there. But he... Didn't, he was careful. He didn't leave many clues. He was careful about his fingerprints. He wiped his own or used gloves for himself. But he left other fingerprints on there, which I guess happens when you buy used parts and so forth. That led to some false trails. So takes up a lot of time for the FBI. They're still not getting closer to Ted Kaczynski, following up with people who sold the equipment or touched it before he did. And he planted some false clues in there, which sent them on some, some more wild goose chases. So, in the end, they decided to publish the essay, to allow it to be published in a major newspaper, and to offer a $1 million reward for anyone who could tell them who wrote the thing. What happened then? They started getting a flood of phone calls, right? Right? Smart guy, hates the modern world. Everyone knows a guy like that, right? A neighbor, some professor you had. So why not take a chance? If you happen to get it right, and the FBI goes to investigate, and it turned out to be the guy, you might hit the jackpot. A million dollars. They we getting a thousand phone calls a day. It's a lot to follow up on. So... There was a man who recognized the manifesto. Kaczynski's brother, David. He recognized the writing, the phrases. He'd seen letters to the editor that his brother had written years before, and he was worried. This is going to end poorly. His brother might kill someone else. That's a bad thing if you're a good person. Other people might die. And David worried his brother might end up getting killed as well in an FBI raid might die shot down in his house or burned. Another bad thing. David Kaczynski was a good person, and so was his wife. They wanted to do the right thing. Is turning in your brother the right thing? That's awfully hard to say for sure. Loyalty is also a good quality. You don't know for sure that anyone else will die, I guess. What if you tweak the facts a little here and say that Ted Kaczynski sent one bomb 20 years ago. The damage was done. The brother was now living a straight and narrow path. Would it still be better to turn him in? Who would that serve? What would a good person do? Would it be a sign of love to turn your brother in, if those were the circumstances? And David himself had shared many of Ted's views. He used to admire Ted. He wanted to emulate him. He was living a similar lifestyle at one point. Living off the grid. He'd given it up now, but still, what does a good person do? David decided he needed to stop his brother. Stop him to save him. Stop him to save others. Needed to stop the harm. And David Kaczynski, the problem was he couldn't get the FBI's attention. They were getting these thousand calls a day, he was just one of a thousand. So he hired a private investigator to track down his brother's activities. Then he hired a lawyer to, con- to uh, contact the FBI. He was trying to achieve the best outcome for his brother, his family, himself. He wanted one thing from the FBI. He wanted to remain anonymous. They could catch Ted, and David did a lot to help them, gave them old letters that Ted had sent him so they could track the postmark dates and figure out his movements from those. The search for Ted Kaczynski ended up being the most expensive investigation the FBI had ever conducted. Without David, they might never have caught him. And David, poor David, wanted one thing. He said, I want to stay anonymous. I don't want my brother to know that it was me, his own brother, who turned him in. The news leaked. So Ted had to live with that knowledge, which is maybe what he deserved, maybe... That's not a bad thing. Maybe he saw the love of a good man. Maybe that was the love. The love that a good man had for his brother, for his society, for his fellow human beings. That's a complicated love. That's the kind of love we're talking about in this Alice Monroe story. That's where we're going to get. That's where she's going to take us. It's not the story of the Kaczynskis but it's got aspects of this, aspects of forcing us to ask questions about what it means to be a good woman and to love. That's one aspect of the title, I think, when we're talking about the love of a good woman, but we're also talking about the love of a good woman in its purest sense of the phrase, the most obvious sense, the first meaning that comes to mind. Enid is a good woman. She has love to give. She hasn't given it to a husband. Maybe it's time. Maybe that would be good for her as well as for the husband. But she knows a secret. She's a little bit like David Kaczynski in this sense. What does a good woman do with a secret like the one Enid has? And there's something else at work here. She's not sure what she knows, she's not sure what's true. What's real? She's been told not to trust her instincts, not to trust her senses or her memories. She's been told that memories can be invented and insights can be mistakes. What is truth? What is reality? How does one act in the face of all this uncertainty? What direction does love take then? How does it move? And where does it attach? It's an astonishing story. It's slow-moving, and not easy and i'm sure a lot of people have thrown it down over the years cast it aside i imagine it's a book that's hit the wall <laughs> it's not <laughs> i know readers like that they something in the something sets them off and they throw the book against the wall this is a book that's maybe hit the wall here and there it's not easy it's demanding it does not fulfill your expectations it even warns you that it's not going to be a conventional story. That's clear from the very first few pages, the first sentence. And even then, even with that warning, it's not an easy story. Expectations are thwarted. Readers don't like that. It imposes upon you questions that are their own answers, the mystery of life, the confusion of chance, the joy of heartbreak, and the agony of the simplest of pleasures. One last thing before we do a few emails and then hear the conclusion of our story. I want you to think about a time when you have made an elaborate plan to see what will happen. A child might do this by saying, okay, if a red car passes by, then I'll go inside and have a popsicle. But if a green car passes by, I'll run around the house three times first, right? A scheme, a plan. You're looking for, it's almost like stargazing, looking for something to tell you what to do. And adults will say things like, I'm going to write this letter, and if she writes me back within three days, I'll ask her out. But if it takes longer than that before I get the reply, I will view it as a sign that she's not interested. That was in the old days when people wrote letters. Then it became, I'll call her, and if she calls me back right away, dot, dot, dot. And then it was email, and now it's probably texts or Now it's probably some kind of swiping. I don't know. It's moving a little fast for me. But it's looking for a sign. The response of others, almost like a superstitious response, except you tie it to some kind of human action, some kind of idea, someone else's head. If things are dramatic enough, you might raise the stakes. You might say, I'll give him an ultimatum that he needs to quit drinking, if he loves me enough, he'll do it. Or you might say, I'm not sure if I deserved this money or not that just fell into my lap, so I'm going to leave it in this bag on the sidewalk. If God wants me to have it, he'll leave the bag there. I can pick it up. Or you might say, I'm not sure if she loves me for my money, so I'll tell her I'm broke and see if she breaks off the engagement. If she does, I'll know. If she doesn't, I'll never have to live in doubt. Enid is setting in place a kind of elaborate plan like this. She finds out a secret, or thinks she does, or thinks she might have. How does she go forward? She needs a test, a way of knowing, a plan. Like David Kaczynski, he needed to know so he would know what to do. Except Enid's stakes are higher. David might have to live with the knowledge that he's turned in his own brother. His brother will go to jail. That's a tough price to pay. But so too is living with the guilt of knowing that innocent people were killed and he hadn't stopped it. But what if David didn't just have to live with guilt? What if it was his wife, his marriage that was on the line? Or what if it was a woman that he wanted to marry? What if the secret was in the past, and now life could continue, and David's life would change for the better? What if he'd never been in love, he'd never known it, he'd never been allowed to know it, and suddenly it was there for him, a new possibility, and all he has to do is figure out if the past is truly in the past. Would it be worth putting his own life at risk for that? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe he hadn't been living at all without love. Maybe he could sacrifice himself for the possibility of a changed future. Maybe the love of a good person is the love that we hope to be able to give. And if we're not able to give it, it's nothing. Maybe it's worth risking everything to have the chance to give that love. Maybe it's worth dying for. Maybe it's worth dying for because without it, we're not truly alive. That's what we're headed for today. That's the frame of mind I want you to be in as you listen to the end of this astounding story, The Love of a Good Woman by Alice Monroe. <laughs> Bring your family along for all of the adventures in The Cat in the Hat Cast. Follow The Cat in the Hat Cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Cat in the Hat Cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, let's hear some emails. Subject: Sharing some of the joy that you have given to me. Hi Jack, I am writing to tell you how much I enjoy and admire your lovely podcast. I have to admit, I initially began listening with an agenda. I graduated with my Ph.D. in literature this past August, and for the past few years, I have been going through educational podcasts for fun and to keep myself well-rounded, but mostly I've been on the lookout for episodes that I can assign in my classes can be nearly impossible to persuade some students to read, but they will almost always listen to something—quick plug for LibriVox, a free audiobook service—and many of them will read if you give them a good reason to care about what you've assigned, something I hope a well-chosen podcast episode can do for them, in case I don't. So when I first came across your podcast, I queued up all the episodes on literature I could conceivably teach. My area is early modern British literature, but I also dabble in ancient, medieval, and biblical literature. Unfortunately, I haven't had the opportunity to assign one of your podcasts yet. Thus far, all I have to show for my professional efforts is a large pile of rejections, and we regret to inform you. But, happily, you have given me reason to care about a good deal of literature. After I finished all of your Antiquarian episodes, I started listening to anything you'd post, and as a direct result, there is now a copy of The Complete Tales of Nikolai Gogol on my bookshelf, which I can clearly see as I write this email. I thoroughly enjoyed the nose and the overcoat, despite the fact that my undergrad degree in literature left me with the the distinct impression that I did not enjoy the canonical Russians. My wife and I also loved your interview with Gillian Gill, which we listened to as we read Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. You are so good at identifying and sharing what is good and interesting and lovable about literary works, and you have an excellent eye for entertaining literary criticism. The essay on Lear and Tolstoy by George Orwell comes to mind. Speaking of my wife, a professor of philosophy, newly converted to the tenure track, I might add, A little spousal pride there. I love it. She has a most embarrassing crush on one Hamlet, Prince of Denmark. She calls him Hammy. Hammy. We also went to a Halloween party dressed up as Emo Hamlet and Ophelia one year. Yes, it was just as bad as it sounds. (laughs) This might have to be our uh, History of Literature podcast couple of the (laughs) year. So, back to the email. So, you can imagine that I could not wait to play your episode on Hamlet for her. The one that starts out with all the things written by people who didn't like the play. Well, we listened to it during a long car ride one day. You know how when you know someone really well, you don't have to look at them to know they're angry. You can just feel the anger radiating. <laughs> Sorry. You can just feel the anger radiating off them like heat or the vibrations from a subwoofer in the car next to you. I couldn't look at her because I was driving, but I knew she was furious. It made me so happy. <laughs> Here's where I started to get a little worried. Then in brackets. Hi, Jack. This is Karen, Tommy's Hamlet-loving wife. I do love your podcast. Don't let him deceive you. Carry on. Close brackets. Let me pause here. Interrupt this email. I have a soft spot, as you know, for couples who listen to the history of literature together. I was so happy to hear this bracketed comment this I was having a few <laughs> confess I had a few tears in my eyes at this point. I was so devastated when Tommy fooled me. Anger from the lover of Hamlet. Here's a woman who loves Hammy, and I I pulled the rug out from under her inadvertently. I was worried that my show well, we've had we've had marriages arise out of the podcast before. That was a highlight. That has to be a top five moment in this the history of the History of Literature podcast, right up there with the Madame Bovary episode and Mike disparaging Don Quixote and setting off an international incident. We've had marriages arise, but we haven't had a divorce, at least as far as I know. So to hear that the anger was radiating off Tommy's wife listening, well, I was terrified by where this was headed. Thank goodness that Karen jumped in with her brackets to let me know that Tommy was being deceitful. I have a few Tommies in my life, those trickster imps. I could use a few more Karens to jump in. How did she get there? How did she she jump into this email? I need a few Karens to supply the brackets to let me exhale when I am at my most fearful. Here's a letter from the bank announcing that if I do not start paying the mortgage on time, they are going to foreclose and send me and all the Wilsons out on the street. And then here's a bracket saying, not really. Don't worry, Jack. It's going to be okay. Or a negative review. Stop talking about race. Nobody cares. Stop giving your views on. And then we get some brackets. Hi, Jack. These are your other listeners. You're doing fine. Please continue. <laughs> I could use Karen in brackets. I like Tommy too, but I like Karen in brackets a lot. Okay, back to the email. If I had, this is Tommy again, if I had one quibble with your show, you know I had to have one. I have a PhD in the humanities. I'm basically trained in quibbling. It would be the episode on Beowulf not because I think it's unjustified to say that it's nothing more than a popcorn-popping action-thriller movie, but because I actually had precisely the same reaction at first. As a graduate student, I taught English literature, an English literature survey from the Middle Ages to 1800, and basically the one old English work that you must teach in this class is Beowulf. After I made the reading schedule for my class, I Reread it for the first time since I was an undergraduate, and when I put it down, I thought to myself, my God, I gave this a whole week? What am I going to say? How am I going to fill the time? So I did what every teacher does. I went to the library in search of some ideas to steal, I mean share, with my students. Thankfully, I found a good one. An essay in the Cambridge Companion to Old English Literature, I believe, points out that the text draws clear parallels between the monsters on the one hand and the kings and monster slayers on the other. Well, boy, howdy. Did my class and I have a grand old time finding and discussing those parallels, which led to really productive conversations about what makes a monster, what's the difference between us and them, and also how we think about nature, predators and all. I certainly would have never seen those parallels on my own, but once I knew they were there, I couldn't unsee them. Many, many thanks for your excellent podcast. It is good for the soul. On days when my professional struggles get me down, I listen to one of your episodes. They give me the energy to hang in there. Wishing you all the best, Tommy. And then there was a follow-up. Hi again, Jack. I'm sending a quick follow-up note to say that Karen and I just became Patreon supporters, as directed by the pop-up on Patreon. We are nothing if not rule followers. We had been meaning to support the show for some time, but just didn't seem to get around to it. Today, though, we are in the middle of the Italo Calvino episode, and we just heard your interview with Robin Speed and Tatiana Santos of the African Library Project. In the middle of the interview, I walked over to Karen. I was doing dishes, and she was occupying our three cats, which is an important job if either of his if either of us is to get anything done around the house and i said this show is about wait <laughs> the cats don't <laughs> the cats won't let tommy wash dishes <laughs> ah sounds like my uh sounds like my sons uh when they were <laughs> they were little uh, okay where are we Tommy is washing dishes. Karen is occupying the cats. He walks over to Karen and says, this show is about literature in the world. We have to become Patreon supporters. So we did. I also want to say how much we love your listener emails. You're cultivating a real-life literary community, one characterized by generosity and curiosity, a rare thing these days. Thanks again for all you do, Tommy and Karen. This time, in the follow-up email, Karen was in the signature she's come out of the brackets. I like Karen in the brackets, keeping Tommy in line. My direct line to the truth. Tommy the wild storyteller. And there I just have to glance at Karen and she shakes her head and gives me a little look. Uh, There Tommy goes again. Don't believe him. That's Karen in the brackets. I feel safe with her. She's an ally. But Tommy and Karen, connected by an ampersand, no less, that's a solid couple. That's the couple who's working together arm in arm, facing life, one doing dishes while the other's with the cats, listening to the podcast. I still, I still can't get over it when couples or families tell me that they listen to the podcast together. I'm so used to being in people's ears. I hear that so often. Someone says I put on the headphones and go for a walk or I listen to you and fall asleep. I took you on my trip to Mongolia. A lot of solitude that I am there for, to help with. It's an honor, truly. But when it's a couple, <laughs> to think that a couple is listening to this together out loud, I feel like I should have dressed up a little more. Like I've been invited to a dinner party and maybe, maybe I've been talking a little too much. Maybe I should be helping with the dishes. I am an honored guest. I'm not saying that this has any basis in reality. I'm just telling you how things are. So, to Tommy and Karen, thank you so much for the emails and for signing up to be Patreon supporters. I am truly grateful for the kind words you've said about the show and for giving me such a boost. I feel like I did when I heard from the Brazilian friend. My heart is warmed. Thanks for having me over. I'm sorry I droned on a bit, and I hope you have me back again soon. I agree that the listener emails are the best. Yours is among them. Okay, let's take one more quick break and return with part three of Alice Monroe's The Love of a Good Woman after this. Oh wait, one little note before we begin. Part two in part in our part 2 of the story we read sections 2 and 3 so when you hear me begin i'll beginning i'll be sorry I'm all tangled up today when you hear me begin reading the story you'll hear me say it's part 4 that's not a mistake that's because we read two parts during our part 2 okay carry on i should have had Karen in brackets read that for me carry on people carry on 4. Lies Enid stayed awake all night. She didn't even try to sleep. She could not lie down in Mrs. Quinn's room. She sat in the kitchen for hours. It was an effort for her to move, even to make a cup of tea or go to the bathroom. Moving her body shook up the information that she was trying to arrange in her head and get used to. She had not undressed or unrolled her hair, and when she brushed her teeth, she seemed to be doing something laborious and unfamiliar. The moonlight came through the kitchen window, she was sitting in the dark, and she watched a patch of light shift through the night on the linoleum and disappear. She was surprised by its disappearance, and then by the birds waking up, the new day starting. The night had seemed so long, and then too short, because nothing had been decided. She got up stiffly, and unlocked the door, and sat on the porch in the beginning light, Even that move jammed her thoughts together. She had to sort through them again and set them on two sides. What had happened, or what she had been told had happened, on one side. What to do about it, on the other. What to do about it. That was what would not come clear to her. The cows had been moved out of the little meadow between the house and the riverbank. She could open the gate if she wanted to, and go in that direction. She knew that she should go back, instead, and check on Mrs. Quinn. But she found herself pulling open the gate bolt. The cows hadn't cropped all the weeds. Sopping wet, they brushed against her stockings. The path was clear, though, under the riverbank trees, those big willows with the wild grape hanging onto them like monkeys' shaggy arms. Mist was rising, so that you could hardly see the river. You had to fix your eyes, concentrate, and then a spot of water would show through, quiet as water in a pot. There must be a moving current, but she could not find it. Then she saw a movement, and it wasn't in the water. There was a boat moving. Tied to a branch, a plain old rowboat was being lifted very slightly, lifted and let fall. Now that she had found it, she kept watching it, as if it could say something to her. And it did. It said something gentle and final. You know. You no. When the children woke up, they found her in bountiful good spirits, freshly washed and dressed and with her hair loose. She had already made the jello crammed with fruit that would be ready for them to eat at noon, and she was mixing batter for cookies that could be baked before it got too hot to use the oven. Is that your father's boat, she said, down in the river? Lois said yes, but we're not supposed to play in it. Then she said, if you went down with us, we could— They had caught on at once to the day's air of privilege, its holiday possibilities, Enid's unusual mix of languor and excitement. We'll see, said Enid. She wanted to make the day a special one for them, special aside from the fact, which she was already almost certain of, that it would be the day of their mother's death. She wanted them to hold something in their minds that could throw a redeeming light on whatever came later, on herself, that is, in whatever way she would affect their lives later. That morning Mrs. Quinn's pulse had been hard to find, and she had not been able, apparently, to raise her head or open her eyes. A great change from yesterday. But Enid was not surprised. She had thought that great spurt of energy, that wicked outpouring talk, would be the last. She held a spoon with water in it to Mrs. Quinn's lips, and Mrs. Quinn drew a little of the water in. She made a mewing sound, the last trace, surely, of all her complaints. Enid did not call the doctor, because he was due to visit anyway later that day, probably early in the afternoon. She shook up soap suds in a jar and bent a piece of wire, and then another piece, to make bubble wands. She showed the children how to make bubbles, blowing steadily and carefully, until as large a shining bladder as possible trembled on the wire, then shaking it delicately free. They chased the bubbles around the yard and kept them afloat till breezes caught them, and hung them in the trees or on the eaves of the porch. What kept them alive then seemed to be the cries of admiration, screams of joy rising up from below. Enid put no restriction on the noise they could make, and when the soap-sud mixture was all used up, she made more. The doctor phoned when she was giving the children their lunch, jello and a plate of cookies sprinkled with colored sugar, and glasses of milk into which she had stirred chocolate syrup. He said he had been held up by a child's falling out of a tree, and he would probably not be out before supper time. Enid said softly, I think she may be going. Well, keep her comfortable if you can, the doctor said. You know how as well as I do. Enid didn't phone Mrs. Green. She knew that Rupert would not be back yet from the auction, and she didn't think that Mrs. Quinn, if she ever had another moment of consciousness, would want to see or hear her sister-in-law in the room nor did it seem likely that she would want to see her children, and there would be nothing good about seeing her for them to remember. She didn't bother trying to take Mrs. Quinn's blood pressure anymore, or her temperature, just sponged off her face and arms and offered the water, which was no longer noticed. She turned on the fan, whose noise Mrs. Quinn had so often objected to. The smell rising from the body seemed to be changing, losing its ammoniac sharpness changing into the common odor of death. She went out and sat on the steps. She took off her shoes and stockings and stretched out her legs in the sun. The children began cautiously to pester her, asking if she would take them down to the river, if they could sit in the boat, or if they found the oars, could she take them rowing? She knew enough not to go that far in the way of desertion, but she asked them, would they like to have a swimming pool, two swimming pools? And she brought out the two laundry tubs, set them on the grass, and filled them with water from the cistern pump. They stripped to their underpants and lolled in the water, becoming Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret Rose. "'What do you think?' said Enid, sitting on the grass with her head back and her eyes shut. "'What do you think? If a person does something very bad, do they have to be punished?' "'Yes,' said Lois immediately. "'They have to get a licking.' "'Who did it?' said Sylvie. "'Just thinking of anybody.' said Enid. Now, what if it was a very bad thing, but nobody knew they did it? Should they tell that they did and be punished? Sylvie said, I would know they did it. You would not, said Lois. How would you know? I would have seen them. You would not. You know the reason I think they should be punished, Enid said. It's because of how bad they are going to feel in themselves, even if nobody did see them and nobody ever knew. If you do something very bad and you are not punished, you feel worse, and feel far worse than if you are. Lois stole the green comb, Sylvie said. I did not, said Lois. I want you to remember that, Enid said. Lois said, it was just laying the side the road. Enid went into the sick room every half hour or so to wipe Mrs. Quinn's face and hands with a damp cloth. She never spoke to her and never touched her hand except with the cloth. She had never absented herself like this before with anybody who was dying. When she opened the door at around half past five, she knew there was nobody alive in the room. The sheet was pulled out and Mrs. Quinn's head was hanging over the side of the bed, a fact that Enid did not record or mention to anybody. She had the body straightened out and cleaned and the bed put to rights before the doctor came. The children were still playing in the yard. July 5. Rain early a.m. L and S playing under porch. Fan off and on. Complains noise. Half cup eggnog spoon at a time. BP up. Both pulse rapid. No complaints pain. Rain didn't cool off much. RQ in evening. Hay finished. July 6. Hot day. Very close. Try fan but no. Sponge often. BQ in evening. Start to cut wheat tomorrow. Everything one or two weeks ahead due to heat. Rain. July 7. Continued heat. Won't take eggnog. Ginger ale from spoon. Very weak. Heavy rain last night. Wind. RQ not able to cut. Grain lodged some places. July 8. No eggnog. Ginger ale. Vomiting AM. More alert. RQ to go to calf auction. Gone two days. Doctor says go ahead. July 9. Very agitated terrible talk. July 10. Patient Mrs. Rupert Jeanette Quinn died today approximately 5 p.m. Heart failure due to uremia. glomerulonephritis. Enid never made a practice of waiting around for the funerals of people she had nursed. It seemed to her a good idea to get out of the house as soon as she decently could. Her presence could not help being a reminder of the time just before the death, which might have been dreary and full of physical disaster, and was now going to be glossed over with ceremony and hospitality and flowers and cakes. Also, there was usually some female relative who would be in place to take over the household completely, putting Enid suddenly in the position of unwanted guest. Mrs. Green, in fact, arrived at the Quinn's house before the undertaker did. Rupert was not back yet. The doctor was in the kitchen, drinking a cup of tea, and talking to Enid about another case that she could take up now that this was finished. Enid was hedging, saying that she had thought of taking some time off. The children were upstairs. They had been told that their mother had gone to heaven, which for them had put the cap on this rare and eventful day. Mrs. Green was shy until the doctor left. She stood at the window to see him turn his car around and drive away. Then she said, maybe I shouldn't say it right now, but I will. I'm glad it happened now, and not later when the summer was over and they were started back to school. Now I'll have time to get them used to living at our place, and used to the idea of the new school they'll be going to. Rupert, he'll have to get used to it too. This was the first time that Enid had realized that Mrs. Green meant to take the children to live with her, not just to stay for a while. Mrs. Green was eager to manage the move, had been looking forward to it, probably, for some time. Very likely she had the children's rooms ready and material bought to make them new clothes. She had a large house and no children of her own. "'You must be wanting to get off home yourself,' she said to Enid. "'As long as there was another woman in the house, it might look like a rival home, and it might be harder for her brother to see the necessity of moving the children out for good. "'Rupert can run you in when he gets here.' Enid said that it was all right. Her mother was coming out to pick her up. "'Oh, I forgot your mother.' said Mrs. Green, her and her snappy little car. She brightened up and began to open the cupboard doors, checking on the glasses and the teacups. Were they clean for the funeral? Somebody's been busy, she said, quite relieved about Enid now and ready to be complimentary. Mr. Green was waiting outside in the truck with the Green's dog, General. Mrs. Green called upstairs for Lois and Sylvie, and they came running down with some clothes and brown paper bags. They ran through the kitchen and slammed the door, without taking any notice of Enid. That's something that's going to have to change, said Mrs. Green, meaning the door slamming. Enid could hear the children shouting their greetings to General, and General barking excitedly in return. Two days later, Enid was back, driving her mother's car herself. She came late in the afternoon, when the funeral would have been well over. There were no extra cars parked outside, which meant that the women who had helped in the kitchen had all gone home, taking with them the extra chairs and teacups and the large coffee pot that belonged to their church. The grass was marked with car tracks and some dropped, crushed flowers. She had to knock on the door now. She had to wait to be asked in. She heard Rupert's heavy, steady footsteps. She spoke some greeting to him when he stood in front of her on the other side of the screen door, but she didn't look into his face. He was in his shirt sleeves, but was wearing his suit trousers. He undid the hook of the door. I wasn't sure anybody would be here, Enid said. I thought you might still be at the barn. Rupert said. They all pitched in with the chores. She could smell whiskey when he spoke, but he didn't sound drunk. I thought you were one of the women come back to collect something you forgot, he said. Enid said. I didn't forget anything. I was just wondering, how are the children? They're fine they're at Olive's. It seemed uncertain whether he was going to ask her in. It was bewilderment that stopped him, not hostility. She had not prepared herself for this first awkward part of the conversation. So that she wouldn't have to look at him, she looked around at the sky. You can feel the evenings getting shorter, she said, even if it isn't a month since the longest day. That's true, said Rupert. Now he opened the door and stood aside, and she went in. On the table was a cup without a saucer. She sat down at the opposite side of the table from where he had been sitting. She was wearing a dark green silk crepe dress and suede shoes to match. When she put these things on, she had thought how this might be the last time that she would dress herself and the last clothes she would ever wear. She had done her hair up in a French braid and powdered her face. Her care, her vanity seemed foolish, but were necessary to her. She had been awake now three nights in a row, awake every minute, and she had not been able to eat, even to fool her mother. Was it specially difficult this time? her mother had said. She hated discussion of illness or deathbeds, and the fact that she had brought herself to ask this meant that Enid's upset was obvious. Was it the children you'd got fond of? she said, the poor little monkeys. Enid said it was just the problem of settling down after a long case, and a hopeless case, of course, had its own strain. She did not go out of her mother's house in the daytime, but she did go for walks at night, when she could be sure of not meeting anybody and having to talk. She had found herself walking past the walls of the county jail. She knew there was a prison yard behind those walls where hangings had once taken place, but not for years and years. They must do it in some large central prison now, when they had to do it, and it was a long time since anybody from this community had committed a sufficiently serious crime. Sitting across the table from Rupert, facing the door of Mrs. Quinn's room, she had almost forgotten her excuse, lost track of the way things were to go. She felt her purse in her lap, the weight of her camera in it, that reminded her, There is one thing I'd like to ask you, She said, I thought I might as well now, because I wouldn't get another chance. Rupert said, What's that? I know you've got a rowboat, so I wanted to ask you to row me out to the middle of the river, and I could get a picture. I'd like to get a picture of the river bank. It's beautiful there, the willow trees along the bank. All right, said Rupert, with the careful lack of surprise that country people will show regarding the frivolity, the rudeness even, of visitors. That was what she was now a visitor. Her plan was to wait until they got out to the middle of the river, then to tell him that she could not swim. First, ask him how deep he thought the water would be there, and he would surely say, after all the rain they had been having, that it might be seven or eight or even ten feet. Then tell him that she could not swim, and that would not be a lie. She had grown up in Wally, on the lake. She had played on the beach every summer of her childhood. She was a strong girl and good at games, but she was frightened of the water, and no coaxing or demonstrating or shaming had ever worked with her. She had not learned to swim. He would only have to give her a shove with one of the oars and topple her into the water and let her sink, then leave the boat out on the water and swim to shore, change his clothes, and say that he had come in from the barn or from a walk and found the car there, and where was she? Even the camera, if found, would make it more plausible. She had taken the boat out to get a picture, then somehow fallen into the river. Once he understood his advantage, she would tell him. She would ask, Is it true? If it was not true, he would hate her for asking. If it was true, and didn't she believe all the time that it was true, he would hate her in another, more dangerous way. Even if she said at once, and meant it, she would mean it, that she was never going to tell. She would speak very quietly all the time, remembering how voices carry out on the water on a summer evening. I am not going to tell, but you are. You can't live on with that kind of secret. You cannot live in the world with such a burden. You will not be able to stand your life. If she had got so far, and he had neither denied what she said, nor pushed her into the river, Enid would know that she had won the gamble. It would take some more talking, more absolutely firm but quiet persuasion, to bring him to the point where he would start to row back to shore. Or, lost, he would say, What will I do? And she would take him one step at a time, saying, First, row back. The first step in a long, dreadful journey. She would tell him every step, and she would stay with him for as many of them as she could. Tie up the boat now. Walk up the bank. Walk through the meadow. Open the gate. She would walk behind him or in front, whichever seemed better to him across the yard and up the porch and into the kitchen. They will say goodbye and get into their separate cars, and then it will be his business where he goes. And she will not phone the police office the next day. She will wait, and they will phone her, and she will go to see him in jail. Every day, or as often as they will let her, she will sit and talk to him in jail, and she will write him letters as well. If they take him to another jail, she will go there, Even if she is allowed to see him only once a month, she will be close by. And in court, yes, every day in court, she will be sitting where he can see her. She does not think anyone would get a death sentence for this sort of murder, which was in a way accidental and was surely a crime of passion. But the shadow is there to sober her when she feels that these pictures of devotion, of a bond that is like love but beyond love, are becoming indecent. Now it has started with her asking to be taken on the river, her excuse of the picture. Both she and Rupert are standing up, and she is facing the door of the sick room, now again the front room, which is shut. She says a foolish thing. Are the quilts taken down off the windows? He doesn't seem to know for a minute what she is talking about. Then he says, The quilts, yes, I think it was Olive, took them down. In there was where we had the funeral. I was only thinking the sun would fade them. He opens the door and she comes around the table, and they stand looking into the room. He says, you can go in if you like. It's all right. Come in. The bed is gone, of course. The furniture is pushed back against the walls. The middle of the room, where they would have had set up the chairs for the funeral, is bare. So is the space in between the north windows. That must have been where they put the coffin. The table where Enid was used to setting the basin— and laying out clothes, cotton wool, spoons, medicine, is jammed into a corner and has a bouquet of delphiniums sitting on it. The tall windows still hold plenty of daylight. Lies is the word that Enid can hear now, out of all the words that Mrs. Quinn said in that room. Lies. I bet it's all lies. Could a person make up something so detailed and diabolical? The answer is yes. A sick person's mind, a dying person's mind, could fill up with all kinds of trash and organize that trash in a most convincing way. Enid's own mind, when she was asleep in this room, had filled up with the most disgusting inventions, with filth. Lies of that nature could be waiting around in the corners of a person's mind, hanging like bats in the corners, waiting to take advantage of any kind of darkness. You can never say, nobody could make that up. Look how elaborate dreams are, layer over layer in them, so that the part you can remember and put into words is just the bit you can scratch off the top. When Enid was four or five years old, she had told her mother that she had gone into her father's office and that she had seen him sitting behind his desk with a woman on his knee. All she could remember about this woman, then and now, was that she wore a hat with a great many flowers on it and a veil, a hat quite out of fashion even at that time, and that her blouse or dress was unbuttoned and there was one bare breast sticking out, the tip of it disappearing into Enid's father's mouth. She had told her mother about this in perfect certainty that she had seen it. She said one of her fronts was stuck in Daddy's mouth. She did not know the word for breasts, though she did know they came in pairs. Her mother said, Now, Enid, what are you talking about? What on earth is a front? Like an ice cream cone. Enid said. And she saw it that way, exactly. She could see it that way still. The biscuit-colored cone with its mound of vanilla ice cream squashed against the woman's chest and the wrong end sticking into her father's mouth. Her mother then did a very unexpected thing. She undid her own dress and took out a dull-skinned object that flopped over her hand. Like this, she said. Enid said no. An ice cream cone, she said. Then that was a dream, her mother said. Dreams are sometimes downright silly. Don't tell Daddy about it. It's too silly. Enid did not believe her mother right away, but in a year or so she saw that such an explanation had to be right because ice cream cones did not ever arrange themselves in that way on ladies' chests and they were never so big. When she was older still, she realized that the hat must have come from some picture. Lies. She hadn't asked him yet, she hadn't spoken. Nothing yet committed her to asking. It was still before. Mr. Willens had still driven himself into Jutland Pond, on purpose or by accident. Everybody still believed that, and as far as Rupert was concerned, Enid believed it too. And as long as that was so, this room and this house and her life held a different possibility, an entirely different possibility from the one she had been living with, or glorying to, however you wanted to put it, for the last few days. The different possibility was coming closer to her, and all she needed to do was to keep quiet and let it come. Through her silence, her collaboration in a silence, what benefits could bloom, for others and for herself. This was what most people knew, a simple thing that it had taken her so long to understand. This was how to keep the world habitable. She had started to weep, not with grief, but with an onslaught of relief that she had not known she was looking for. Now she looked into Rupert's face and saw that his eyes were bloodshot and the skin around them puckered and dried out as if he had been weeping too. He said, she wasn't lucky in her life. Enid excused herself and went to get her handkerchief, which was in her purse on the table. She was embarrassed now that she had dressed herself up in readiness for such a melodramatic fate. I don't know what I was thinking of, she said. I can't walk down to the river in these shoes. Rupert shut the door of the front room. If you want to go, we can still go, he said. There ought to be a pair of rubber boots would fit you somewhere. Not hers, Enid hoped. No, hers would be too small. Rupert opened a bin in the woodshed just outside the kitchen door. Enid had never looked into that bin. She had thought it contained firewood, which she had certainly had no need of that summer. Rupert lifted out several single rubber boots and even snow boots, trying to find a pair. These look like they might do, he said. They maybe were mothers, or even mine before my feet got full size. He pulled out something that looked like a piece of tent, then, by a broken strap, an old school satchel. Forgot all the stuff that was in here, he said, letting these things fall back and throwing the unusable boots on top of them. He dropped the lid and gave a private, grieved, informal-sounding sigh. A house like this, lived in by one family for so long a time and neglected for the past several years, would have plenty of bins, drawers, shelves, suitcases, trunks, crawl spaces full of things that it would be up to Enid to sort out, saving and labeling some, restoring some to use, sending others by the box load to the dump. When she got that chance, she wouldn't balk at it. She would make this house into a place that had no secrets from her and where all order was as she had decreed. "'He set the boots down in front of her "'while she was bent over, unbuckling her shoes. "'She smelled under the whiskey the bitter breath "'that came after a sleepless night and a long, harsh day. "'She smelled the deeply sweat-soaked skin "'of a hard-worked man that no washing, "'at least the washing he did, could get quite fresh. "'No bodily smell, even the smell of semen, "'was unfamiliar to her. "'But there was something new and invasive "'about the smell of a body so distinctly not in her power.' "'or under her care. "'That was welcome. "'See, can you walk?' he said. "'She could walk. "'She walked in front of him to the gate. "'He bent over her shoulder to swing it open for her. "'She waited while he bolted it, "'then stood aside to let him walk ahead "'because he had brought a little hatchet from the woodshed "'to clear their path. "'The cows were supposed to keep the growth down,' he said, "'but there's things cows won't eat.' "'She said, "'I was only down here once.' early in the morning. The desperation of her frame of mind then had to seem childish to her now. Rupert went along chopping at the big fleshy thistles. The sun cast a level, dusty light on the bulk of the trees ahead. The air was clear in some places, then suddenly you would enter a cloud of tiny bugs. Bugs no bigger than specks of dust that were constantly in motion, yet kept themselves together in the shape of a pillar or a cloud." How did they manage to do that? And how did they choose one spot over another to do it in? It must have something to do with feeding. But they never seemed to be still enough to feed. When she and Rupert went underneath the roof of summer leaves, it was dusk. It was almost night. You had to watch that you didn't trip over roots that swelled up out of the path or hit your head on the dangling, surprisingly tough-stemmed vines. Then a flash of water came through the black branches the lit up water near the opposite bank of the river, the trees over there still decked out in light. On this side, they were going down the bank now, through the willows. The water was tea-colored, but clear. And the boat waiting, riding in the shadows, just the same. The oars are hid, said Rupert. He went into the willows to locate them. In a moment, she lost sight of him. She went closer to the water's edge, where her boots sank into the mud a little and held her. If she tried to, she could still hear Rupert's movements in the bushes. But if she concentrated on the motion of the boat, a slight and secretive motion, she could feel as if everything for a long way around had gone quiet. Okay, there we go. Alice Monroe, my God, what a writer. That's one for the ages. And so is Alice Monroe week. It's in the books. First time for us on the History of Literature podcast. I think that we've done three episodes in a week. My thanks to Tommy the Trickster and Karen in brackets and the combo of Tommy ampersand Karen for making my day. My thanks to Alice Monroe too, for stretching me out. She calls forth all my powers, which is all that I ask. We'll be back with some Mike Palindromes soon, a couple of good ones in the works. I'm sure you will enjoy them. You can help the show at patreon.com, patreon.com slash literature, and historyofliterature.com slash shop, if you are so inclined. You can also help us by recommending the podcast to your friends and to your social media connections, trying to do more outreach on Twitter and Facebook, and I could use your help. There are links in the show notes. And there's always just the simple rating, reviewing, and recommending, and so on. Or give yourself a break. Maybe you need a cup of tea after that Alice Munro story. Maybe you need to run out and get that story and read it again. I've read it many times. It's never failed me. Speaking of failings, I'm Jack Wilson. Oh, Oh, there we go. Now you know the interns have been monkeying with the script. They know I just read it blindly. Like some dork robot Incapable of understanding the words coming out of my mouth Well, guess what? Karen is here Karen in brackets She's here to help Let's try it again Speaking of failings, I'm Jack Wilson Bracket Hi listeners, this is Karen Jack's just kidding He's not failing He's failed Close brackets Oh no Even Carrot in Brackets has turned on me now. Must be time to wrap things up. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.